0: Hello and welcome to a special episode of The Deeper Podcast where we are diving into the questions that we haven't answered yet that have been submitted into our question box as part of our gender fluid series. If you're new here, this podcast is all about how we can live lives that unleash a little bit more courage so that we're able to love the hell out of this world. I'm Reverend Sean, one of your hosts Um, And in just a little bit, I'm going to invite um, some of my colleagues into a conversation to tackle some of the questions. But there were even more questions that came in after we had that conversation that I thought I would just quickly run through. So here we go. The first question, why do people confuse LGBTQIA folks with pedophilia or sexual predation? This is a really great question. And that's because the uh, popular kind of homophobic and transphobic tropes have made this connection. Um, and when you look at all sorts of moral panics, be it racial moral panics, gender moral panics, sexuality moral panics, there always is a fear of children. And children are held up as these um, these. You know, beings that should be protected at all costs and the scapegoating of the other in the form of the targeted of whatever that moral panic is always comes down to their influence on children. So is there any correlation between being LGBTQIA and any sort of uh, sexual attraction or sexual offending towards children? No. In fact, the majority of people who offend against children are uh, identify as heterosexual, identify as cisgender men. That being said, there are going to, of course, be people within the LGBTQIA community that uh, offend sexually, um, but that is not uh, in any way the, the rule. It is, in fact, part of being human because, let's face it, LGBTQIA people are human. And so they are going to be uh, just as good as other folks and also struggle with some of the same uh, pitfalls. And yet the association and the confusion has to do with um, the fear-mongering that is created about queer people um, in both religious communities um, that are not accepting, but also in popular culture and mythology. Um, I think the other wh- reason that people confuse uh, pedophilia or sexual predation with gender and sexual minorities is that when you are, th- there's this kind of confusion that heterosexuality, uh, edit. I think the final reason that people confuse uh, queer folks uh, or conflate queer folks and pedophilia other than making a political, uh, quick political point uh, without any facts Um, is because queer people are seen as inherently more sexual um, than heterosexual people. And this is not because of any behavioral differences, but because queer folks are going against a sexual or gender norm. Um, Talking about the norm seems to bring up questions about sex and sexuality, and therefore there's this higher association with sexuality, and yet... That sort of association um, creates this air of uh, sex that just goes around uh, queer folks. Um, also, queer folks are generally a little bit more freer in some certain spaces around their sexualities because they've needed to create community around it. And so that is used against queer folks in these sorts of political discourses. So it's a really good question, and there's so much to get into. Uh, I'm going to dive into the next question which is, does the quality of one's life directly relate to the level of uncomfortability a person can live with? If yes, it speaks to the value of embracing (sighs) discomfort. I think this is a beautiful question because I think it's getting at one of the kind of deep spiritual practices that it's the heart of this series and um, at the heart of Our work as a religious community, which is how do we create the level of interior stability that allows ourselves to move through deep uncertainty and discomfort in ways that does not shake us, but we are open to learning, we're curious that we're able to grow. You know, if you're able to, you know, I I noticed this in my own life, in the times in which I'm more able to move through levels of discomfort the more i'm able to meet people who i may have different political perspectives with may have different life experiences from and if i'm okay with being uncomfortable i don't resort to kind of quick tactics to get rid of that discomfort which can mean um, shutting down conversations it can mean um not taking responsibility when i uh I uh, have a microaggression against um, a person of color because I was uncomfortable um, with the the situation with you know talking about race or even just their presence, which happens. Um, all of those times in which I'm able to be uncomfortable, uh, that's where I find a degree of growth and an openness to connection. So yeah, valuing, Discomfort. I think if we can, as a community, to build our spiritual muscles to be able to do that, it does it, uh, open ourselves to a level of life that is, um, well, it is much more transformative. All right, our final question before I go to our panel. Do-do-do. Is there a good reason to distinguish between they, them, singular for non-binary or gender fluid versus they, them, plural for one body with multiple personalities? Um, Yeah, so I think there's a few things in here uh, to unpack. Firstly, the use of they, them as a pronoun, both singular and plural, has been common in English for a long time. You know, there's this kind of argument that people are redefining grammar as gender neutral pronouns are coming into our uh, our lexicon but firstly that's not true we've used them for a long time i mean how would you describe someone who you don't know their gender um <laughs> even just in common uh common vernacular most people will say oh they went to the store Where's do me they went to the store you don't always use the the pronoun um but you know because it does have the capacity to be plural as many languages have this this oddity of words that can be both singular and plural um one of the questions is so. This question: Should we distinguish between they them singular and they them plural? I think f- the first thing um, to note is that non-binary people who are using they them pronouns, or anyone who's using they them pronouns, is generally not claiming a plural identity in the sense that they ha- have multiple personalities. The Dissociative identity uh, disorder, which is what is known as multiple personality disorder, is a very specific diagnosis that affects, um, you know, certain people, but a a small minority of people that, you know, is uh, not related in any way to this plural. And so um, people who have uh, DID um, can have different genders of their different personalities, and so might have different pronouns for each of their personalities in their uh, constellation, But that is not uh, what the majority of trans and gender uh, non-conforming and non-binary people are doing when they are talking about they-them pronouns. It could be the case that people like the expansiveness of kind of a plural pronoun in that it gives a sense of multiple possibilities and multiple expressions. Um, But I think generally there's no important reason to make a distinguishing between the single and the plural in terms of these pronouns. Well, that is it for those questions. So I thought I would invite Lauren, Eleanor, and Gretchen into the conversation to not only pick up some of the questions that we put in our, have been put into the question box, but also just to reflect a little bit on this series as it's coming to a close. So hello, everyone. Hello. Hello.
1: Good morning.
0: So I want to start with something that's kind of struck me which is when we, st- we had this idea for this series, and I know I started talking to people about it because I was super excited about it. The majority of people kind of looked at me like, oh, that's interesting. That's, that's a lot of Sundays on gender. Like there wasn't this automatic sense of like, yes, this is the issue that we really need to be spending all of this time uh, engaging with. And yet I feel like each each Sunday, each uh, time we've dived into it, more and more people have been like, wow, this is really resonating. There's a lot here. I didn't really have a sense that this was as important to dive into. And yet I'm finding myself like really questioning and really interrogating and really exploring these concepts in ways that are surprising to me. I I wanted to hear from all of you if you've been noticing that and why you think that is if you have been
1: I guess um I'm wondering if it's um I think many of us maybe started out with a a pretty simplistic maybe is the word I would use understanding of what we thought
2: um, gender was and you know maybe even some of us us, a binary understanding or oh there could be maybe something else we've been doing this pronoun thing um but I think there was just a really what I saw for example in the grandparent circle that we held was just a, a real um an opening of understanding of a, a much more expansive understanding of gender than was there previously
1: and also the I implications and to- in- go ahead good sorry
3: it's okay um i talked to a couple of our one very long time member one newer member but both older women and uh this sunday and they both thanked me and all of us profusely for this series and said almost exactly what you said Sean which is I started this kind of thinking oh and they both the way they said it is I we kind of already know um we, we kind of already we feel good about what we know and we think we we know what we need to know and they left feeling just much more expanded and um just really moved Actually, And pushed and chal- challenged and helpful, like inner growth ways. And the thing that what I interpreted from that is that it moved from a knowledge place about others to something that was personally um, in a feeling place and in an unembodied place. And I think that's the really that's the key thing that I, I feel like people came in thinking it was about knowing and I think it—it it really was an invitation to to open up to um, deep stories, deep personal stories, deep like stories filled with tons of emotion and, in some places, shame, and uh, childhood stories and stories that continue. And just the, I think it really met. I think there was a sense that it was it was going to be about knowing about something that wasn't really about you and instead it became it was an, a series that really helped people explore in their own self and their own bodies and i think that's what we hoped for and i really i feel like that was it was unexpected medicine and people didn't totally realize how much they
4: needed it i would pick up that same thread about moving from the abstract to the personal gretchen I think what I witnessed at the beginning was a lot of people thinking, well, this is important. I'm very empathetic to this. I think it's great that we're doing this thing that's going to be relevant and helpful for other people. I support this. Um, And then people started to move into an experience of, oh, this is me. This is my story. This is not solely about... People who have marginalized identities that I want to be supportive of. Gender shows up for me in my life, in my work, in how I move through the world, in my marriage, in my relationships. This is showing up in my parenting and how I interact with my children and the messages that I might be conveying consciously or unconsciously in how I respond to my kids and what they're experiencing. So I think, yeah, I, I I would just echo that. I really, I witnessed a shift from this is about other people and I'm on board to this is deeply about me in ways I didn't expect
2: it to be.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I heard that specifically from a couple of um, older um, cisgender heterosexual men that, um, it really expanded things for them personally, thinking about gender in a different way, in a more complex way, in their lives and how it shows up in their lives.
0: You know, Gretchen, in your uh, sermon, you talked about uh, masculinity and the ways in which, because men are assumed to be kind of the default gender, there's a um a lack of interrogation of the mysterious depths within the gendered experiences of men um i i think in a lot of ways this series for me what i saw was that sort of um lack of interrogation happening for uh men for cis folks about their cisness or this or just how that all plays together and so there's just this invitation to play in that mm-hmm. um in those questions and one thing that i know was our intention going into this but i feel like we did a pretty good job about it was really staying in the place of of curiosity and exploration because i have noticed amongst our people especially who tend to be like Perfectionists, and as you said, Gretchen, like really in their brains and want to get things right. There's this fear of getting things wrong or not understanding that that means that they um, check out. And what I witnessed was folks not checking out, not grasping everything entirely, not getting it, quote unquote, but struggling with it. And that's a really beautiful thing to be in the struggle together about this. Um, because it it invites a degree of depth and that thinking you've got it checked off the box um, doesn't.
1: So, Yeah, I mean that's right.
0: Well, let's turn to some of the questions that we had in our question box. Um, this is also one of those practices, I think, that adopting was really fruitful of just, hey, we're going to be exploring your questions our questions together not because we have all of the answers but we might be able to point each other on the way so let's begin with an easy one i think this was after uh one of the sundays um someone asked what is an appropriate substitute for the polite yes sir or thank you ma'am phrases
1: it's a really good question
3: I mean, first of all, I just want to commend the person who asked it because I think just noticing that it turns out that we gender our language every day, and it becomes a way to be polite um and that gender
1: is we have to, it's part of our everyday experience. I appreciate that.
3: I have yet to find something that totally works for me. So I'd love to know what y'all think. Have you found a word that really, that sounds more formal?
2: My go-to is just remove the gendered language. Just say yes, please. Thank you very much.
1: Hmm.
4: In our children's spaces, I probably use the word friends more often than anything else. So rather than boys and girls, it's just, hey, friends. Mm
1: Mm-hmm.
3: I think what you don't get in that though, Lauren, is the um, is the elder piece that is implied a kind of um, a, a way of being
1: respectful towards your elders, for sure.
0: Yeah, I think that that sense of um, respect maybe needs to find its way into like tone and gesture. In place of language, like how are you conveying that that sense of of deference and appreciation in ways that aren't words? Um, I also I was reading somewhere that um, you know if when you're trying to get someone's attention, like my go-to is something like you know, excuse me, ma'am, or excuse me, sir. Like you can drop the sir and the ma'am and bring some 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 warmth into your voice. Um, you also could, like, if you're saying something like, uh, can you give me a, a minute, sir, or something like that, like, you might add, like, please in there. Mm-hmm. You know, could you please or something like that to just have that sense of kind of the request as, you know, offering some sort of, like, honorificness in there.
2: And I I would second the body language in terms of um, really giving your full attention, uh, body attention, turning your shoulders and face toward them, not a casual posture, but a physical attitude of respect.
0: You know, I I think for me, the biggest one that I would want people to work on is, I think that the sirs and the ma'ams, they happen, I would just try to like, decrease your use of them in general right but i think when you're using uh, like binary language to address a group of people that's one of the easier ones to uh you know it's the teacher that says hello boys and girls um or the ladies and gentlemen like those are the kind of enforcing a binary that we know is not true and also pretty easy to get you know rid of like good morning class good morning students good morning friends i think some teachers use like scholars or learners um You know, when you're dressing. you know, good morning, everyone. It's so good to see everyone here. Like easy ways to get out of the the gentlemen, uh, ladies and gentlemen kind of frame. All right. I'm going to go to our next question.
1: All right. How can gender be more of a verb and less of a noun?
0: How can gender be more of a verb and less of a noun? Gender is something we do and not something we are. I mean, I think my first stab at this is that gender is something that we verb. It is an action. Um, what we do in our society is we try to gl- you know, glom together certain actions and nouns. So we say, oh, these sorts of actions, these sorts of expressions, these sorts of ways of being in the world, we're going to kind of cement them down, lock them down as a noun, as a thing you are. And yet, um, you know, I think throughout the series, we've talked about how that very action of taking a certain set of actions and making it a noun, making it solid in a thing, is restrictive not only to people who are nouned in that way, but also people who are not nouned in that way, because then those verbs, those actions, those gendering things are not accessible to them. Or at least their scorn or disconnect if they So I think that if you invite yourself to see your gender expression as as actions, as verbing, as gendering, you'll probably find more freedom than simply thinking about yourself as a solid set noun of a gender. What do you all think? And then
3: turn for other people too. Like if you imagine that they are gendering rather than that they are the gender.
2: Well, I, I can speak as someone who's older than the rest of you in this conversation <laughs> and say that um, I know that in my role as a leader um, earlier in my life, I would have often thought of the way I would structure an experience or the way the expectations I would have from, for actions uh, from people would have been gendered. I would have thought, I'm going to ask the females in this space to do these sorts of things. I'm going to ask the males in this space to do these sorts of things. Yeah, I think I've definitely, you know, it certainly is there still in my, um, you know, cultural DNA that I was raised with, but I've tried to trouble that and rethink how my expectations of um, how I would ask people
1: to, to act or be in spaces that are less injured i
0: I have an example of that which you know when i was a kid there were girl push-ups and boy push-ups and as a boy who could not do the quote-unquote boy push-ups there was a lot of you know you know scorn or derision when you had to do the quote unquote girl push ups. And yet, my sister is, is an incredible athlete and could do way more of the quote unquote boy push ups than I could. I, we once did a triathlon and I started waves and waves ahead of her and she beat me <laughs> because she is that much better at the sporting. Um, and yet, and so I've seen a shift to speaking about like modified. That there's modified push-ups, there's knee push-ups, and then there's, you know, uh, toe push-ups. And just think about the accessibility of taking the gender out of it that is not necessary. And so now y- you're not doing that quote-unquote lesser thing if you can do push-ups on your knees. I mean, you're still doing push-ups. That's still pretty good.
2: Yeah, I, I wanted think to climb, climb the rope, to- and I never could climb the rope but I really wanted to,
1: yeah.
4: Gender is as noun versus verb. uh, It feels easier to hold on to as a noun for me when it's working for you, um, and harder to hold on to as a noun when it's not working for you. And that showed up for me in our early exercises as a team when we were trying to come up with new names for our gender identities uh, that didn't use traditional phrasing. And the one I came up with for myself was girl who doesn't girl the way a girl is supposed to girl. And the best way I could express it was to verb the noun. To say that I get the sense that this thing that feels true to me about who I am,
1: I think I'm not performing it the way people want me to or expect me to. I also feel like there's a, a really healthy
2: shift in Thinking of gendering as a verb, as something that um, I guess you know more in the sense that I would think of learning or something that I see younger people doing in a way that is more fluid and expansive and
1: um and not fixed. That is a really healthy. A healthy thing for
2: young people to be doing. To be experimenting with gender fluidity.
0: Well, and it's an experience that all people, even cis people, have. Is that how they gender changes over their lives based on who they're in relationship with, the stage of life that they're in. All of these things change. And so that's, I think it's like recognizing something that like any of these nouns, any of these genders is never stagnant, even if we claim them and feel them deeply, that they're always going to be changing. They're always going to be in relationship. Okay, next question. How does it feel to cisgender kids when right now we're putting so much focus on trans, non-binary, and gender expansive children?
1: I mean, I think it depends on the child. Um, in that I think there's a lot of
3: their children are very diverse. And so every kid's gonna have their own um process and reaction. And the thing that I know most of all is that all kids long to be seen, known for who they are. That's a really core thing. And so continuing to say, you know, how are kids being seen and known? And then all kids have I believe, uh, compassion and kindness for pe- people who have other experiences. And so um, it can be a very connective experience to know about somebody that's not like you, um, whatever that is. And so I haven't found that my kids or other kids that I'm in relationship with have any kind of challenge about um different genders or the kind of talking about gender as a spectrum they actually seem to be it comes quite easily to them um there was a period of time where my kids at like age two or three really loved the concrete binary (laughs) but other than that little um, time they they're very it really comes easily and actually it seems like mostly it's kids that are not i mean it's adults that didn't grow up with that, that
4: have more, have a harder time. That's been my experience as well, Gretchen. And, you know, I I have not really encountered young kids expressing it in the terms I'm about to use. But I see them experiencing that liberation is contagious. And that the more space we make for different ways of being and different understandings of how. In all of our human diversity, we move through the world. The more space we make to understand the way someone else is doing that, the more space we're making for the child in front of us to move through the world in whatever way feels good and right for them. And I, I've seen, you know, just the kids I live with in my house, when they notice us making space for others
1: those are their values too so they feel good to know that welcome and belonging is expanding i'm seeing a just an overall cultural shift too
2: in terms of like this morning i dropped my 7-year-old grandson off at first grade and then, um the diversity of gender expression that i wouldn't have seen when their like his parents were You know, I'm seeing boys with sparkly at-packs who, you know, look to me, appear to me to be cisgender boys and leggings with animal flower print on them. And um, I am seeing, in my experience with kids, really not just no, um, no discomfort
1: with a really wide range of gender expression. In their peers.
2: I also see the developmental thing that you named Gretchen. You know, my my four-year-old granddaughter is in a very cisgender female phase right now. Um, in our owl uh, last um, kindergarten, first grade owl class, she tagged along. Uh, in one of the stations, there was an activity with with a variety of toys, which were And then you could sort them into toys for girls, toys for boys, toys for everyone. Um, She sorted all the toys into the girl box quite effectively. My seven-year-old grandson put all the toys in the everything box. Everyone, toys for everyone box.
3: Yeah, but I think actually that, that also brings up that, you know, it reminds us that we don't need to worry about kids, about cisgender kids getting sufficient orientation to being cisgendered. <laughs> like, it's in the culture. It's literally everywhere. And so I I think there's something in the question that, that wonders, is there too much emphasis? Like, we're not giving enough space for people to be cisgender. And that is, you know, it's something that I think people have talked about for um, queer parents, like. Will your kids autom not know how to be straight or something? You know, and the thing is, like, literally, kids—it's just everywhere. It that education is everywhere, and to give anything about trans or non-binary or gender expansiveness is is a tiny sliver of the amount of education they'll get from the culture at large.
4: Gretchen, that piece you just mentioned—I have encountered that sometimes being translated as a worry that when adults describe or hold space or educate children about gender expansiveness, that they're creating pressure that they might be pushing their children into a gender expansive identity that wouldn't have been their identity otherwise. You know, like, are we, are we inadvertently pushing children into being non-binary when really who they really are is cisgendered. If we had not perhaps created, um, what some people are perceiving as pressure when in fact what a lot of
1: parents and loving adults are doing is um, one, nothing that could ever dismantle completely the hugeness
4: of the cisgendered education that exists in the culture at large. Um, But but offering vocabulary and offering um, some words to help describe and understand things that young children just don't have. So an adult can help articulate something in a way that's helpful to a child that's not at all the same as pushing a child into something that's not who they
2: are.
0: If we, if we could push children into a certain sexuality and a certain gender identity, um, probably queer people would not exist because uh, so generations of generations of parents tried to push them uh, away from it, and yet it doesn't work. So, exactly. All right, next question. Um, I'm going to paraphrase this one a little bit. Um, so the question is about, I, I I met someone, I felt like we were kind of on the same page in terms of our values, and then suddenly... You know, they kind of come out with some religious beliefs that were anti-gay, um, presumably anti-trans. She seems like a nice person. You know, what do you do in these moments when we encounter someone's intolerance or ignorance and their kind of small-mindedness when it comes to gender? What, what have you felt has been affected?
3: I think, first of all, really get um, checking yourself is really critical. In other words, how triggering is it for you? And that if you can't uh, maintain connection and non reactivity, then the relationship isn't really going to work. So, I, I think first of all, just knowing how, how much it's going to charge you. And if then, if you are able to work through and regulate, manage your own reactivity, manage your anxiety, stay open to true connection, I think it can be a wonderful opportunity for true relationship across difference and shared humanity. And I, I think that's, it's a really comp- complex kind of relationship to manage these days because so much is so supercharged by our larger culture. Um, But I think that if there's a way to continue in relationship and and be differentiated enough that you can share what your perspectives are without defensiveness, without judgment without just that's just not how i feel it those relationships can be the place where change actually happens so um i should say all of that is you can't start with the objective that you're going to change their minds it like that as an objective in the relationship it's a transaction I'm trying to form real connection and real understanding should be the goal um And then, you know, see what happens. And if it not, like uh, Krista said on Sunday, I think there's that, like, you can't change everybody's mind. You can't change most people's minds.
1: But more relationship and more humanity across difference is a good thing.
0: Yeah, I think if you are able to kind of be curious about the other person's perspective and ask them questions, um, that kind of help them unpack it, you, you'll probably find that it goes back to something important to them, a religious value, a formative experience, a worldview, and kind of surfacing that can be super helpful. I think the only nuance I would say to that is, if there are other people in the space, like this isn't a conversation we're having, but you're in a group setting, and you know that these sorts of comments can be, are, are going to be harmful for other people who are listening, I think it is important to, um, to provide a voice of a differing perspective in, into the space um, so that you're signaling to other people that, oh, yeah, I heard that, that thing that hurts. Um, and, you know, you're not alone if, if you're experiencing some, some pain or some hurt from this. And um, especially if you're an ally, being someone in that space who doesn't claim these identities To then do some of the work, some of the labor of engaging with that person and not letting it have to be, you know, trans folks or queer folks who have to educate other people about this, that you can take on that inquisitive space um, to help unpack that and to witness to your perspective. You know, I I do believe that there is something infectious about a non-anxious person proclaiming love and acceptance. Like, you have all of this, anim- someone has all this animosity about queer folks, about trans folks, and then they meet this person that's just like, actually, I, I think it's beautiful. I-, I think it's a beautiful manifestation of the beauty of humanity. And that they're just solid in that. And that they're not, like, yelling at you because you have a different perspective. I mean, that's a pretty powerful thing for someone to encounter. Because it doesn't reify their, f- their belief of being persecuted which a lot of folks have around these sorts of issues, but it does challenge them um, to think.
1: All right, next
0: question. I've been volunteering for an organization that sort of pressures people to share their name and their pronouns. When I have only put my name... I was called up publicly for missing the pronouns, which was shaming and embarrassing. I am uncomfortable being forced into a box that feels like a lie, but I don't want to out myself as someone I am not. So my question, if gender is in continuum and there are many expressions of gender, then why are there only three options for she, his, or they? What do I do and say in situations where we're all expected to have a pronoun answer? Please help.
3: That, um, okay, so first of all, it is possible to ask for no pronoun. I have friends who just say, I'd prefer you use my name. And, but to give no nothing, then it's, uh, there's no guidance at all. So you can feel
1: free to say there, I prefer my name, but uh, otherwise they will choose a default
3: of what they assume, which also puts you back in the box you're trying to avoid. So um, there are other options. There are other pronoun options. Uh, Z and Zer. you can Google it. Like there's a bunch that people have come up with. Um, Maybe there's one in there that works for you, but feel free to try just saying, I prefer you just use my name or you can use any pronoun and I'll respond. That also people say that too. So
4: I'd offer up, too, that I see people using pronouns in combination and saying my pronouns are she, they. It's not a forced choice to choose only one.
2: Yeah, I've definitely had the any pronouns response in um, particularly in youth spaces that I've worked in. And um, I do, I think we're, the question maybe um, troubled me a little bit, Sean to to think about a little bit more expansively to invite:
0: Yeah, I mean, that's that. what got me about this is is mm-hmm. that pronouns the sharing of pronouns is um, is a step towards inclusivity, but it isn't uh, the the only if everyone shared their pronouns we would not have made the jump towards full inclusion, right? Sharing pronouns invites an understanding that, hey, we're going to respect what you say. That's the invitation. But forcing people to, disc- to s- disclose their pronouns, it can feel violent, which is, I think, what this person is experiencing. Like, I feel uncomfortable. I feel like I may not be safe here to say my right pronouns. I'm- There's not one that represents me, so... Every time I'm being forced and called out, it feels like I'm being put on the spot for something. So, like, forcing or enforcing pronouns is not a way to create inclusivity uh, because it puts many people, especially uh, cis, non-binary, or non-binary and trans folks, like, uh, are particularly, it spotlights them in a way that can be harmful. And so do not enforce pronouns, invite pronouns, do not shame people who are not um, sharing their pronouns. Be, you know, if someone is struggling with their pronouns in a group, you know, have the conversation with them. Um, say, hey, like it's, it seems like this, this pronoun thing is a struggle. Do you want to talk about it? You know, it could be that they're cis and it's the first time they've been asked about this and so they're confused. Or it could be that they're struggling with it because of their own identity. Um, so forcing it isn't a way to create inclusivity at all.
1: I agree. And I'm thinking about how um, I've actually had
2: youths who are part of a, you know, a space where we're sharing pronouns insist that other people share their pronouns. And I'm rethinking that thinking I will, I would like to um, invite this in a way that feels less forced. Because, yeah, as you said, the goal is to to make the space more expansive,
1: feel restrictive or forced.
3: I think that with that, yes, and with one caveat, which is that sometimes that discomfort is a, is okay. And that I think part of what we're dealing with is, you know, dis, just what's a discomfort that is grow, growth-oriented versus discomfort that is shutting down. And... I think just there is a piece of this of trying to kind of just push us all towards a practice that we and for many of us is totally new. And so I think finding that line is always complicated. I would also encourage this, the person who asked this question, to talk to the person who's inviting their pronouns and just have a conversation about what it feels like and try to
1: connect on that and um inviting you know a a bit of conversation about why why are we inviting pronouns
0: right if the person's trying to be inclusive Mm -hmm. by doing it they're showing they're trying and they're missing the mark so let's let's work together all right we got two more questions Well ultimate question is, I'm going to try to summarize it a little bit. Um, there's been a lot of progress that's been made uh, to expand women's rights and expand feminism, you know, over the centuries. Um, there's always been really complicated relationships between the feminist movement and uh, questions of racism and classism. And I'm a little bit worried about how when we think about gender in this kind of as a spectrum, or we think about different gender identities and different gender expressions, how that sort of expansiveness, um, might uh, challenge the, the feminist movement or the progression of, uh, justice in these ways, um, because of potential infighting, because of the ways that it's uh, complicated and people may not agree about things, um, or even that there may be different values or uh, priorities amongst different groups, so how how do how do these things dive together?
3: Well, we know this is not the first time that this sort of uh, question or challenge has come up for feminism. Um, it was the one of the first challenges to how at the time the phrase women's rights would be um uh furthered what came up when um the white suffragettes were asked by particularly you uh, have black women to fight for black suffrage um at inclusive of their fight for women's suffrage um and uh, as we know the, the Women, white women at the time decided that that was not the right strategy, that it would take too long, that it would be too, quote unquote, divisive. So, uh, which, you know, you might, there's those kinds of tactical assessments all the time in divisive and movement work. And um, what, when you look at the arc of history, um, what we know is a couple things. First of all, um, we know that we have played out that lack of inclusion repeatedly over and over and over since that time. And um, it might have taken longer in the short run for white women to get the vote, but it Would have been a more secure liberation, a fuller liberation that was predicated on true equality and would have helped expand the notion of what freedom and equality actually meant. So, I guess I would say that's similar in this situation, and that, you know, what we have to ask ourselves what is the equality and freedom that we're actually fighting for when we talk about feminism or when we talk about um, equality? what 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 is the um, whose freedom and whose equality are we working towards and what do we actually mean by that? so that we might compromise um, a certain kind of freedom for a certain kind of folks in the very short term, but it's out of a desire for true freedom and true equality in the long run. And I think part of that is just recognizing, you know it, it means a fundamental assumption, That we are only all free when we are all free. And it means really, it means, uh, you know, living with that, believing that reality, working from assumption that we are, that none of us are free until we're all truly free. And so there is no women's equality, quote unquote,
1: that is not gender expansive.
0: I think the what I will lift up is in some of these conversations where there's a, a fear of the way that trans, I mean, the existence of trans people, the inclusion of trans people in the feminist movement, there's this feeling of threat. And that feeling of threat comes from the trauma of having to exist in a patriarchal society in which there is oppression based on this classification. And so... I think we need to be attentive to that reality of just that there's a trauma here. There's a pain here, especially, you know, as I've encountered women um, of older generations than me who were part of this consciousness raising effort that occurred in in the 60s and 70s as a part of the feminist movement that was so identity and world defined. It, it truly like liberated them from the expectations that were put on them as a as as children and as young people, and you know, helped them in so and reformat society in so many ways that created so many more opportunities. Um, and so the the fear that that would be challenged is a real fear. And as Gretchen, you just said that that fear um, shouldn't um, rule the day. You know, especially in what you reflected on in your. Um, your misinformation talking point is that trans people are being unfairly, you know, scapegoated, targeted as a threat to, to feminism, to women's spaces, in a way that they're, it's not the root cause of the problems. And yet it's being used quite effectively uh, to dissipate power. And so the most transformative movement is going to be one where we see gender justice, feminism, as inclusive of trans liberation.
2: Yeah, and I think for me personally, it's um, when something rises up that uh, triggers that fear in me to to really take the time to do personal reflection to. Identify where that's coming from, and identify: um, is this real? And what return back to my um, values of you know? I really, I do. I want everyone to be free and beloved. And what does it mean for me to let go of so a vision of of feminism that I may have had? in
1: the past.
3: I think at the same time, I also want to just note that this, what we're saying doesn't necessitate a kind of purity test about who can work together. And that I think continuing to figure out where we have alignment and shared goals and working towards those things, even if there's pieces that aren't Aligned is really, I I know not everybody agrees with that as a strategy, but for me, it's important. And um, in that, and I guess what I mean to say is, it's similar to you asked when we asked the question about how do you stay in a relationship with somebody who has really different beliefs than you do, that I would still be willing to work with somebody who is working from a different understanding of gender towards some shared goals,
1: um, it doesn't mean that necessarily that we're going to be able to work together on everything,
3: if that makes sense. You know, I just, I think that we're, I think building a movement with as many folks working where they can towards liberation is important and not getting caught in like whether or not you
1: totally get it all in order to be partners on the work of justice is important. All right, last question.
0: Will we be targeted as a church, as a community for kind of a public stance of supporting trans non-binary people for adopting this sense of gender for having drag in our church services like are is there a risk for this and uh the question i would put into this for all of you to kind of close this out is why are we stepping into this what is kind of our reason for for being this out there on these issues
3: um, before we go to the extreme, I want to say, I just want to lift up that it's not all we I mean we can go to the extreme in terms of targeting. but I actually think that um that sometimes distracts us from the potential resistance from within our community and in our even in ourselves. and so um i I think that the answer to that is yes. Will we be targeted, quote unquote? The answer is yes, including in ourselves. We will sab- sabotage ourselves from being able to fully engage and look at some of these um, really often new, challenging, scary, uncomfortable conversations. Um, and um, you know, I think you' the question of why <laughs> um. To, I think you, I mean, we talked about it on Sunday, um, but I think getting to that faithful question of what does it mean to be, to truly uh, uh, understand, identify and uh, transform oppression within ourselves is that's part of our faithful journey. And so we are, we Our mission is to unleash courageous love, courageous being the thing that asks us to do the thing that is not
1: simple or easy and that pushes us and that does risk um, some pushback or something stronger than pushback in ourselves and in others. This change doesn't happen without some kind of, pushback so to me change is uh
3: growth requires some kind of friction and we're in a process of growth and change so um i still believe our our mission is about um abundant life life joyous life and
1: life by that i mean for all so that's what we're working towards and we're not there yet I think it's important to I mean,
4: the, whether are there risks or not? Of course there are. So I think that's maybe not exactly the right question, because I think we start with acknowledging, yep, there are risks. Of course. Um, and we're honest with each other about what those are, so we know how to respond, and we're prepared.
1: Um, but I like to think about, what are we risking? if we don't take these actions? What are we risking if we don't invite the possibility of the friction? When we do, when we do invite the risk, the outcome
4: can be so healing and so nourishing. When we had a drag performance in our church and I asked a a whole group of our young children Um, My question to them was, what do you think the drag performer, what words would you use to describe how you would guess the drag performer was feeling during the performance? And the words I heard were free, satisfied, creative, excited. You know, so right there I see a whole generation of children seeing freedom and possibility. And I was then able to send a message to that performer to say, hey, these are the words children used to describe what they thought was going on for you while you were performing. And I want you to know about this fantastic influence you are having on children. Because if I don't create the opportunity to send that message, what's left is the continuing sense of, People are afraid of me. People think I'm a harmful influence in the world. People think my art is not legitimate. People come up with all sorts of legislation and rules to cast me as a danger. And so when we do invite in the risk, we create the opportunity to say your influence in the world is nourishing and good and makes
1: us better. I feel like um, this this question is kind of making me come full circles from back to where
2: we started um, with what you said, Gretchen, in terms of I feel like it pushed me and so many people that I talked to out of um, a comfortable place into a place of risk of really thinking about gender in ways that challenged us they had invited us to, um, to really come up with our, I a just so much more solid, um, sense of why it is important
1: to have a much more expansive, um, idea of gender and why, um,
2: have, you know, really understanding those talking points and, why it is a faithful response for us as Unitarian Universalists to lift this up as a series. I feel like that was a beautiful movement that I felt in myself and in our congregation during this series.
0: Is this a risk? Yes, it is. And the primary risk is to our own assumptions about who we are. Because the real risks to bodies and souls and hearts uh, are people just trying to live their lives with a sense of integrity, who are being targeted, who are being harassed, who are being killed for being trans, for being non-binary, for being gender expansive, for not coloring inside the lines. Those people are the ones facing the risk. The rest of us, deciding if we're going to be in solidarity and commit to unlearning and partnering, sure, we might get some blowback. Some people might get upset. At worst, there might be incidental moments of vandalism, maybe a little harassment. But that pales in comparison to the degree of pain that is being experienced right now by trans non-binary people. So I I think like any time that we are deciding whether or not to do something, the potential good that comes from making, I'm going to restart that, I think like anytime we're at a decision moment and we're trying to decide what the way forward is, when we are aligning ourselves with those who are most targeted by our s- systems of injustice, then we're making the right choice, especially as an institution with wealth and power um, accumulated through many just and unjust ways so our work is to figure out what to do with that legacy. And I think this is exactly what we're called to do.
3: Yeah, I mean, like, really, like, why else do we exist? Truly. Like, in the scheme of things, there are many places that might form a community. There are many places where people can practice, um, have spiritual practice together. Um, There are many, you know, there's lots of like online forums to meditate or pray, or there's various places you can sing. But in terms of truly, why does a church exist today? What is the thing we are are most critical for?
1: To me, it is it is to be able
3: to be that force that will say this this thing, this, this movement or is, a, is a movement of death and we are for life. That, and to, make, to put ourselves and our
1: power, as you said, in between that force of death and to call for life. It's like our whole reason.
0: Amen. Well, th- thanks for joining me in this conversation, everyone. Thanks, Sean.
1: Thank you. Thanks, Sean.